Hello. We come to the end of our series, The Invitation, reflecting on various occasions when Jesus invited people to come to him. It was my privilege to start the series in April with Come Follow, and it's my privilege to complete the series today with Come Give. I was sitting in a garden with some church friends after the April message and they pointed out something to me which I hadn't noticed uh, in the process of recording or in the process of editing, something they'd spotted from the recorded message. And it was this. I wonder if you can notice what's wrong with this image. Because what you should have seen was this. For some reason, the image was back to front. Well, if you did spot that, well done, award yourself some points, but even more points if you have spotted that there's something back to front about today's title. It says, come give, but in reality, it's give, come. This is what Jesus says to the young man. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven come follow me so this is not really a come give message at all it's a come follow message we're right back to where we were at the start of the series in april but you'll be delighted to know that i'm not going to repeat what i said then instead as we start to look at this story of the rich young ruler i want to first of all point out two assumptions that all of the players in this scene held. There are two givens in this passage, two things that first century people of Palestine took for granted, that 21st century people of England do not take for granted, and they are these. First, that there is a life after this life. All of the participants in the scene that unfolds in Luke chapter 18 assume that there is a life after this life. Good teacher, the young man, comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus' response. He concludes his section by saying to his disciples, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters and so on will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Just imagine for a moment that this rope represents time going from this point forwards. Now, we tend to agonise about this little red bit, which represents our short stay on earth. We wonder what's going to happen here. We plan for what's going to happen here. We want to enjoy this little bit here. But the rope goes on and on and on. Our short space of time on earth is just like this little red end of the rope. The whole of eternity carries on after we die. We are foolish to think, if we do think, that there is no life after this life. That's the first assumption. There is life after this life. The second one, follows from the first and that is to enjoy the life after this life there is no guarantee it's not a given that we're all going to enjoy that life 
we need to be saved. That's why the young ruler is approaching Jesus in the first place. He wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus doesn't deny these two assumptions. He challenges the rich young ruler to think about some other assumptions, and we'll come to those later. But he doesn't challenge these two basic assumptions, that there is a life after this life, and that that eternal life is not a given for everyone. Hearing Jesus challenge to the rich young ruler, the disciples ask, not do we really need to be saved, but who then can be saved? The disciples shared in this assumption that there was an eternal life, but that it wasn't a given. One of the basic tenets of the Christian faith is that we need rescuing. And I wonder at the start of this message whether you recognise that. I wonder if you are of the view that everything will all pan out fine in the end. Because the Bible's message is that there is a future that we need to consider. We need to be saved, to use the Bible's terminology. And all of the characters in this passage share these two assumptions, that there's, that there's a life after this life, and that we need to be saved. The question is, how? Which brings us to three perspectives on the eternal life that the young ruler is asking for. The first, of course, is the perspective of the rich young ruler who believed there was something he could do to inherit eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Actually, that phrase, good teacher, is quite an interesting one because the Jews generally believed that only two things were good, God and the law. So something interesting is going on here. Either this rich young ruler thinks, believes something about Jesus that he is willing to imply, but is not willing to spell out something about Jesus' nature, perhaps. Or alternatively, he is using some flattery to um, get Jesus' goodwill, to get Jesus on his side um, in order to get the answer to his question. Well, Jesus um, treats him quite gently in his initial response. He quotes five of the ten commandments. He quotes commandments five through to nine. Now, commandments one through to four are all about how we relate to God. Jesus bypasses those and goes straight in at number five. And he, he leaves out the sixth one, which arguably is the hardest to keep. Commandments five to nine are easy to keep to the letter, if not to the spirit, whereas the tenth is almost impossible to keep. So Jesus is going very gently with this young man. And the young man says, look, all of those, I've, I've kept the lot. And if he was feeling smug at that point, then Jesus' words were about to bring him down to earth. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. That particular command for this young man was too hard. And we read that he went away very sad because he was, well, he was wealthy. 
to use a high jump analogy, this young man had been clearing the heights throughout his life and Jesus had just raised the bar to a height that it was impossible for him to clear. That's the young man's perspective. And that brings us to the perspective of the crowd and we include at this point at least the disciples as well because from their words they also share in the crowd's view. And it's the perspective that they would have had following Jesus' words to the young man. If the young man was coming with the view, I can do enough, there's something I can do to inherit eternal life, then the crowds hearing Jesus come to the conclusion it's impossible to inherit eternal life. Jesus has set the bar so high that nobody can clear it. And the reason they believed that was that the wealthy were considered to be God's favourites. They believed that God showed his favour to people by making them wealthy. It was a sign of his blessing on their lives. And now Jesus appears to be saying that the rich aren't going to find it easy at all. So for the crowds, many of whom would have been poor, they come to this conclusion, well, if the rich aren't going to get in, the rich who are blessed and favoured by God, what chance have we, the poor got? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, we can't be sure what Jesus was meaning by his phrase, the eye of a needle. But here are two possibilities. Beside the great gate into Jerusalem through which traffic went, there was a little gate just wide and high enough for a man to get through. Apparently, that little gate was called the needle's eye. So that's one theory. Alternatively, there was another word which sounded very similar to the Greek word for a camel, camelos. It was camelos, meaning a ship's hawser or rope. So perhaps Jesus was saying that it would be easier to thread a needle with a ship's rope than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Whatever it meant, Jesus' overall message is clear. It is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that brings us to Jesus' perspective. In one sense, he agrees with them. What is impossible with man, he starts to say, he appears to be in agreement. If a man or a woman wants to clear the bar, then it's too high. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. There is a way to be saved. And Jesus points the crowd away from what they might do for themselves to an alternative possibility. But why then did Jesus ask the man to sell what he had? Doesn't that seem to imply that he was asking the man to do something to inherit eternal life. Jesus says there is one thing missing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Is this a contradiction of what Jesus has been saying? Is this a contradiction of what I've been saying about this passage? The message of the Bible as a whole is consistent with what I've said to this point. 
So two examples, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.16. And again in Romans 3, verse 28, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So is Jesus contradicting that? Well, no, I don't think he is. What he's doing is subtly pointing the man to something in his life which matters more than following Jesus. In a roundabout way, Jesus is taking this young man back to the Ten Commandments and specifically to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what is a God? Something or someone that we put our trust in. Something or someone that we turn to when we're in trouble. Something or someone that gives us a sense of worth and value. Something or someone that demands our attention, our time, our energy. Something or someone that defines what matters, what the rules of life are. Something or someone that can make us feel happy or make us feel sad. Here's what Timothy Keller has to say about idols, false gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Well, there are plenty of ideas there to choose from, aren't there? And here's another great theologian that I have quoted from in the past, Mike Tyson. Money is my God. If you think God will help you, then quit your job and see how much he cares. Well, actually, Mike Tyson gets it. He understands the principle here. Money, he says, looks after me. If you think God looks after you, then prove it. Or how about this from American Gods? Money, the most influential God in America. Untouchable, insert word here that I can't use in church, but his stock never fails. Money influences. Money makes things happen. Money is dependable. Money is probably the greatest God in Western society. But actually, I wonder if it wasn't also the greatest God in Middle Eastern society 2000 years ago. And Jesus was challenging this rich young ruler about where his confidence lay. What did he 
or who did he really worship? Now, some of us may be uncomfortable with Jesus' instruction to this young man to sell everything that he had. Maybe it appears to us uncaring or irresponsible or unfair. But actually, we don't know this young man's personal circumstances. All we know is that the young man was asking about eternal life and Jesus put his finger on something that was hindering this young man from coming to follow Jesus. If this man wanted eternal life, he was going to have to make a choice about who or what he put his confidence and trust in. Someone else might be uncomfortable with the implication that we too need to sell everything that we have before we can follow Jesus. But I think that misses the point. When we hear Jesus say, you lack one thing, the one thing for us could be very different. What is it that might be stopping us from following Jesus? You still lack one thing. What is it that we need to personally give up? What's getting in the way of our discipleship? Is it our wealth or is it our reputation or is it our family? Is it something else that's getting in the way? Because although this story is about money, it's really about discipleship. It's not so much a come give message as a come follow message. And if all of that sounds a bit scary, if you're worried about the implications of following Jesus, then let me just remind you of what Jesus says to his disciples at the end. No one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So as I did back in April, I do again now, I invite you to follow Jesus. I invite you to reflect on the two assumptions that we uh, began with, that there is a life after this life and that no one inherits it automatically. I invite, invite you to reflect on that and to ask yourself where you stand with regard to those two assumptions. I invite you to reflect on the three perspectives of salvation that I can do enough, I can do something to inherit eternal life, that it's an impossible ask, or that there is another way through faith in Christ. And I invite you, to, invite you to accept that one thing is needed, faith or trust in Christ. And any, anything that gets in the way of that is our God, is our false idol and needs to be abandoned. William Barclay, in writing about this passage, headed his section, The Man Who Would Not Pay the Price. And I invite you to consider that however costly it appears, and however costly it might be, it is worth it. And then finally, I invite you to remember that whenever you receive an invitation, the responsibility passes passes back to you to respond. Jesus says, come. What's your response to Jesus?